This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. Good Wednesday afternoon. Once again, identity crisis here. I am not Linda Swain. I'm Brian Callahan in for Linda once again this afternoon as she continues to make progress in her uh, recovery from the COVID. Word is she looking good for a potential return tomorrow, though, Claudette. So I see, or at least I hear. But hey, no, who knows? 24 hours can make a big difference or not. Another nice day here in the metro area today. One nice day could be an anomaly. Two in a row got me thinking spring all the way now. So... No more Sheila's brushes, please and thank you. And just a reminder, we do take your calls on News Talk, any subject and in the news on any subject or whatever's on your mind, really, 273-5211, 709-273-5211. Of course, uh, same numbers as Open Line, 1-866-590-VOCM outside the uh, metro area, or that's 8626. Uh, decent run of news day today, though, uh, compared to yesterday, that's for sure. Uh, which makes a show called News Talk a little easier to pull off. Um, of course, not the least of which was the update from Newfoundland and Labrador Hydro on the status of the Labrador Island transmission link following the, uh, the latest high-powered testing over the past weekend, uh, past week. And this kind of just in. Um, all the news conferences I've gone to regarding the island, uh, the, uh, the LIL, as we call it, the Trans-Labrador Island link and Muskrat Falls, um, we were always told it was coming. Jennifer Williams, the CEO and president, you know, always assisted. They, uh, they had faith that it, they could get to the finish line. And today they're announcing they have. Uh, NL Hydro now considers the entire Muskrat Falls project officially commissioned. And yes, that includes the Labrador Island link, which crosses the Strait of Belle Isle there from Fort Toe Point on the Labrador side to Shoal Cove on the Newfoundland side. As we know, long plagued with GE software issues, back and forth, um, updates, delays, but they believe they now have the fix uh, after that final round of high power testing over the past week. Some still, some other software issues that still have to be worked out, but those outstanding issues, uh, you know, Hydro has never considered them significant enough to interfere with final commissioning. So they'll still have some work to do at, after this stage, but uh, they consider the entire project now commissioned. That's huge news. Now, enough of me talking about it. VOCM's Richard Duggan was at Hydro Place just a short while ago for the big news, uh, which was dropped by NL Hydro President and CEO Jennifer Williams. Obviously, we had a very good uh, week in the last week or so with regards to the tests. You all knew it was coming. Um, the system did perform as expected, uh, as we had hoped it would, and what we expected that it would. Um, I did have every confidence. You've heard me say that uh, many times. I have had confidence that we would get here. And so while we're very okay with being held accountable um, and scrutiny, and we're here today, and I've been very open um, for media questions and certainly in front of the regulator, um, and you've heard me say this before, too, is I really want to lean into, just in this moment in particular, uh, talking about the team. So I got my confidence from the team. The team would tell me they can see what's possible. So I knew it was possible because I believe in them. I saw the hard work that they do, um, the negativity that's been around this for a very long time. These folks have been wearing that themselves a very small group of people, and I'm going to say the organization, and certainly the province, has been wearing the negativity around this for a very long time. So when people come in here every day and still work really hard to resolve these very complex issues, I couldn't ask for better people to work with. So I just want to do a, um, a major shout out to them, and I'm incredibly proud to work with them. That's how I'd like to start, and happy to take your questions. So what happens next? 
So what happens next is there's very unexciting documentation processes that we're following, and uh, but the but basically is the testing that we just concluded uh, considers this project now commissioned, the last aspects commissioned. Um, we do have to go through some paperwork um, between us and the federal government to conclude things, and that will inform the final official commissioning date. So uh, you know that is happening over the next couple of weeks, and, and then we'll f- consider commissioned, and then we keep moving. So are you confident all of the software problems with the line is now are now solved? So it's always been the case that we have to get through the tests that we just finished, um, and they were extensive, serious, heavy-duty tests, um, and then we always knew we'd have to get another version of software. But to consider this project commissioned, I'm very confident in the software that we have. And so we will have another version of software to come that will pick up on the things that were okay to postpone, and those um, will um, improve things, but they don't weren't not needed in order to for us to consider commissioned and for it to re- function reliably at this level. Can you maybe explain what commissioning means to just for people who don't necessarily know what you're saying when you say the project is commissioned? Sure. Um, So... It's a huge project with major financial um, investments required by various parties. And all of those parties would have agreed to what is a performance level required in order for the project to be considered concluded, and therefore you can then start um, implementing the project in a long-term fashion into your planning, into your you know financial planning, those sorts of things. So basically is, is the project is now commissioned from that perspective. This has been a long and sometimes very complicated road. How big of a moment is this to say that the project is considered commissioned? It's a huge moment, um, a moment that I know the whole province has been waiting for for quite some time. Um, and, you know, we can amplify that for the people here who've been really working um, to get that done. We had a very fun text group, um, certainly going and monitoring every moment this weekend. We got some really cool pictures of the team, um, you know, this weekend out there, you know, with smiles on their face, which, again, you know it's going to be okay, but you still have to go through the tests. Um, so it's a huge moment, to be quite honest. I literally was crying in Dominion parking lot this weekend. And, um, you know, when this was all happening, it's it's a really big deal. Had you, you promised an update on cost at commissioning? Can mm-hmm. you provide that? Not today, because I think I, I just said just a couple of minutes ago, the actual commissioning date is yet to be determined. Is it tomorrow? Is it Friday? Is it in a week's time, two weeks' time? So, and sometimes, you know, the days, they're meaningful. Um, so we have to finish our work with the federal government. All of that, plus how we're going to, you know, deal with rate mitigation will inform that final commissioning date and will inform the final cost. So we'll have that for, for you all in the coming months, hopefully, the next couple of months. And I guess that's one of the key, key questions for a lot of people is, okay, when do I, when do do we as ratepayers start paying for the cost of Muskrat Falls? Sure. So, um, as you know, we we're, every year we go through a July 1st rate increase. There was a small amount of costs included last year when the plant was commissioned. So there were some costs already being incurred. Um, and what we have to do next, now that we have this last aspect, the commissioning concluded, um, we now have to finish our rate mitigation plan um, with the provincial government. And so that'll take us another few months, I believe, to get concluded. And then we will have more to say about that. And it'll really get a lot of public scrutiny through the um, the public utilities process when we do a, a general rate application, which will happen sometime next year. When can people expect that to happen? Is there an idea? Will it be this year? Will it be in the next few months? Mm-hmm. For, for, for associated with the Musgrave Falls project, as I've just mentioned, there's a small amount of costs that are already included in folks' rates. And, um, you know, I think it'll be 
there'll be more to say on how these rates are going to you know, um, evolve over time in the coming months. Um, so I think we'll have to wait till we see how that looks for folks to comment on that. Will that reduce in the need for Holyrood? Absolutely. So today, for example, um, I think um, I looked this morning around 8 o'clock, there's about 100 megawatts total out of Holyrood on about a system demand of about 1,000-ish, right? So anywhere from 10 to 15% is what uh, Holyrood is currently contributing to the system. So an important component, um, a very important component from a reliability perspective, um, but it, it is, um, it is a, quite a small component if you compare it to other jurisdictions from a fossil fuel perspective how the, um, how the system is being supplied. And what about in comparison to like our recent history in terms of how much it was using? Right. So, um, like last year, we had been um, uh, really working hard to get more and more power over the lill, even in its not final commissioned fashion, um, and we had been doing that. So we actually ended 2022 with around 90% of the energy produced um, about uh, as clean energy. So we're actually in pretty good shape already. And what this will do is allow us to continue to eat away at that final 10%. You mentioned that when you got the news that the tests were passed, you, you cried in your car. What, why was that? You're going to make me cry now, <laughs> Peter. Um, it's, the weight, it's the weight that this has had on people for a long time. It's okay. It's okay. And I'm not apologizing for that either. Because it's okay. The people here have been crapped on a lot wherever they go. Do it to me. Do not do it to them. But it, gets, it happens all the time. It really bothers me. So I'm hopeful... <laughs> So this weekend, I hope the weight was lifted a bit for those folks. So I'm a bit of a mama bear, and you've heard me say that before. But it really does bother me when people are, um, all they get is the vitriol and the negativity because it is unwarranted. It can be very hard to come to work when all the folks are subjected to is that negative um, aspect, when we knew we would get here. So when you have people who work their butts off every day, in spite of that, I got their back every single day of the week. So the reason why I was crying, it was a relief for the team. It really was. And to be honest, it was a relief for the province. Like, I knew this was coming, but I know how much the whole province wanted this and, I guess, hoped for it, maybe. Uh, maybe there was some hope lost. But it's there. It's delivered. We, we have done it. And I'm just over the moon for the team that did this. There you have it. That's the um, president and CEO of NL Hydro, Newfoundland Labrador Hydro, Jennifer Williams, giving, uh, well, making it official that Muskrat Falls project, the entirety of it is now officially commissioned, uh, but also revealing, you know, the personal side of it and, um, you know, the slings and arrows that came with uh, being associated with the Muskrat Falls project. You know, we, we know it was called a boondoggle in the report. So um, and we all are familiar with what uh, I think it's up to 13, almost $13.5 billion project, which uh, was originally slated to be $6 billion and the issues over the years. So uh, there you have it. Uh, big day for the project, big day for the province. Uh, we'll have more reaction to this, of course, throughout the day and on the morning show tomorrow morning. Thanks to Richard Duggan, VOCM's Richard Duggan, for going to the news conference today and uh, gathering that tape. Uh, when we come back, we'll uh, hear the latest from the um, Newfoundland Labrador Teachers Association is holding their biannual, biannual convention in the in St. John's uh, next couple of days. And we'll hear from NLTA President Trent Langdon after the break. I'm Brian Callahan in for Linda Swain on News Talk. We'll be right back. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your 
VOCM Morning Show. Welcome back to the program. Brian Callahan in for Linda Swain again today. So uh, earlier today, the uh, NLTA, better known as the Newfoundland and Labrador Teachers Association, uh, kicked off its biennial convention at the Sheraton Hotel Newfoundland in uh, St. John's today, uh, downtown. A uh, whole host of issues on the agenda, of course, for teachers um, and the challenges, to put it mildly, that they're facing in that profession. Just for starters, they say the provincial government is not paying enough attention to them or the public education system and that staffing issues, like so many other sectors, are causing big problems. Uh, NLTA President Trent Langdon addressed the convention this morning, and uh, shortly after that, he took questions from reporters, including... Uh, President Bills. Trent Langdon, just if you can elaborate on the staffing shortages, you touched on it, saying schools may have to close. Can you just elaborate on that? Absolutely, Ryan. So we ultimately, we've already seen cases where uh, schools have had to shift, and uh, we've seen circumstances where, say, for example, uh, teachers in high school have had to, to shift to, to teach the younger kids in the school and allow the older kids to, to work online or work uh, independently. Uh, as, as, so we've seen that multiple times already. We're, we're very worried uh, and we've seen and heard from teachers and, and administrators that they're coming to a point where it's the breaking point or the tipping point as they call it, uh, where uh, if something is not done soon, uh, that is going to end up to school closures, to total school closures in certain areas for certain days. And the last thing we want to see is, is or have is parents have to wake up in the morning and see if uh, well, number one, see if schools close for snow. It's quite another to wake up and see schools are closed because there's not enough teachers. At it, a couple of years ago, there was an issue with uh, with uh, supply teachers, uh, relief teachers. Uh, what's the situation there? Is that what we're speaking of right now? It's a combination, yeah. So our substitute teachers, our supply teachers, uh, there's a shortage in this province right now. Significant issue. We're relying heavily on our retirees. Uh, so people who've done 30, 30 years in the system, and all of a sudden they're coming back to be the savior. That's not a healthy system. We very much value them being in our system, but we need a, a current active workforce to be pushing our, uh, our education, education system and supporting our students. Uh, as well, in certain areas, we're relying on emergency supply teachers, and all that requires is a, is a person with a grade 12 diploma who, who gets paid at a lesser degree but can still go in and cover classes. Just think about it's a watering down of our system, and it's coming to a point where uh, the integrity of the system is coming in qu- into question. You did mention the health care system in your in your address as well. How do you convince government uh, that you're, you should be right up there with health care? Exactly. And I, I think anybody who asks, health care and education are the, two of the biggest portfolios in government. Uh, I will not stand here and say that education is more important than health care because everyone, I think, would agree that health care is on the forefront for any, any person. But education needs to be right up there as a separate conversation. It needs to be a long-term investment out here. Uh, in, there needs to be a different approach rather than just dealing with the acute issues that exist. And in health care, you need to do that. If there's an emergency room closed, you've got to deal with that. Uh, whereas with schools, there's a long-term uh, renewal that needs to take place here of a a readjustment or a reanalysis of what's happening in different regions because just what what's happening on say the coast of Labrador is not necessarily applicable to St. John's or Cornerbrook uh, even though we've seen in Cornerbrook I've heard of schools that are uh, short every day between three and ten teachers so when you think about it t- parents are uh, when they send their kids to the school in the morning presuming that it is status quo when it isn't it's the hidden reality as we've been saying and so you uh, issued a call for action uh, among your membership what is the call what does that look like 
bottom line for us, our, our, our people are going to keep moving forward no matter what. And that's, that's the thing. Teachers have always been, uh, is a double-edged sword in many ways. You know, they're very stressed. They're doing what they need to do, but they've always been called upon to do what they need to do, and they've done it. Uh, now it's coming to a breaking point where there's just not enough of us in those schools because if someone calls in sick and they're unable to be replaced, that then falls on to the other person. Uh, so we've got a, we got a, a, a great deal of heaviness in our system right now. It's triaging every single day. Uh, administrators uh, look at their plan books and say, what do I have covered? What do I not have covered? And they start pulling. And that and I've heard administrators say they're, they're dreading to go into school every day because they need to go to their colleagues and say, your day will look different. Your classes are doubling up. You are losing all your preparation time, which is not very much in the first place. Uh, and that heaviness starts as, as 8 o'clock in the morning. I know now that the BGM started uh, yesterday, yep. but can you tell me what participants can expect over the next uh, few days? Right. So uh, bottom line, you know, we were just speaking about all the issues that we have in the system right now, but it's, it's a very optimistic room in there right now. I was, it, was, it was a pleasure to be there, actually, because we have, as I said earlier, a, a lot of young teachers, a lot of new faces, and this is about uh, lighting the fire within because we truly do believe that our association is very strong. We very much believe that we're a professional approach to, to fixing the problems. We're solution focus. We want to work with government, but right now there's been no plan. So this BGM is, is a celebration of the work that our teachers are doing. It's also an opportunity to elect our, our new provincial executive for the next two years, to strategize, and to really set the path forward for us over the coming years. Uh, with the keynote address is not the education minister. It's the education minister has been invited, and will will they be here? Do you no, know? The, the government has not been invited. They, they've provided uh, their, uh, uh, their uh, welcomes in, in paper format, uh, but they were not invited to attend. Uh, we have uh, uh, the president of the Canadian Teachers Federation presenting. We also have, you know, just general uh, presentations from internal workings that we need to cover. Uh, but our, our keynote is Jean-Noël Granier, a professor at the University of Laval, and his uh, his work and his focus is on unionism and uh, mobilizing teacher unions specific, uh, specifically across the country. And it's time in this province where teachers take the next step. We've always been respected and we've always been professional in our approach. Now we need to focus more on the collective and the unionist piece of, of driving education, because in the end, it's our children and it's our communities that we're concerned about. But wouldn't that begin with having the education minister here, uh, Dr. Hagee? Most conventions I go to do invite the appropriate minister, mm -hmm. whether it's mm -hmm. municipalities or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I have, I've had meetings with Dr. Hagee. I've had uh, meetings with Minister Osborne when he, was, when he was minister. And that work is happening. For this particular BGM, it was decided that this was the best approach for us. Uh, Minister Hagee knows where we stand on all these issues, and, and the value of having him here right now is not where I, I think it needs to be, nor our provincial executive. So our focus is, is being on internal workings and moving forward as an association, and we want to do what we need to do to, to strengthen and to, and to push government to where they need to be. Can you tell me again how many people are participating today, or and how many people I guess will be will be voting for that new executive? Right. So it's about 140 people total, but there's 107 that would be voting for a, a provincial executive of 10, uh, in addition to your vice president and president, and which have already been decided, obviously. And uh, uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's going to be uh, an election tomorrow morning. That is the president of the NLTA, Trent Langdon, speaking with reporters, including VOCM's Brian Medor there this morning at the Sheraton in downtown St. John's. Um, you also heard Mr. Landon there mention at the end there 
that the president and vice president positions are already filled. So uh, Langdon himself won by acclamation last October, actually, and VP Dale Lamb was elected in December. So the rest of the executive will be elected tomorrow. So thanks to Brian Medor for that, providing that this afternoon. Um, and now for something completely different, if you're a Monty Python fan. Um, this has nothing to do with Monty Python. That was just... A really bad segue. It's a um, nice story here, a soft one in before we get up to the news. It's a bittersweet day at Tim Hortons on Rope Walk Lane. If you're ever, if that's your pit stop for coffee or whatever, uh, your snacks, uh, the Rope Walk Tims, Sheila, uh, Shirley Murphy, sorry, who has been greeting customers serving double doubles there for almost 26, 26 years. She's calling it a career. We heard from um, uh, the owner of that location earlier today and Noah Shepard, VOCM's Noah Shepard, caught up with Shirley herself about her last day earlier this afternoon. Over 25 years working at Tim's on Ropewalk Lane. How are you feeling retiring now? Um, I actually feel wonderful today. Um, I am going to miss the customers and co-workers, and it's all been wonderful. But I think it's time just for me to worry about me and my grandkids and my family. But, uh, yeah, it's a it's wonderful feeling. And from what I've uh, from what I've heard, you've had lots of uh, customers dropping by to uh, to give you some well wishes. Uh, how does it feel to see you know faces that you may have uh, seen every day and now realize that you've had an impact on? I know it's going to be a big adjustment. They uh, the customers especially have been a very big part of my everyday, and I'll miss them. But I don't live too far away, so I'll be popping around checking up on them. It's wonderful. The staff and the customers are all so very good. Uh, the industry that you've worked in, sometimes it can be uh, be a bit of a thankless job. Uh, how does it feel now to, uh, to just hear uh, how much of an impact you've had on people? I think it's been very, very rewarding, very rewarding. Uh, I feel thankful that I had this opportunity, to be honest, because I've met a lot of wonderful people. And so, yeah, I'm very, I feel very thankful. And what are your plans for retirement? Uh, just to take each day as it comes and try and be as happy as I can and do whatever, <laughs> whatever. I don't have to worry about uh, putting the clock on in the mor- to get up in the morning. Yeah, I can uh, I can relate to that. Well, Shirley, well done. Congrats on almost 26 years at that location, boys of oh boys. But you have, you know, not for the faint of heart. I can only imagine people rushing in, rushing out. We've all been in lineups at Tim Horton. So um, good on Shirley. Wow, 26 years calling it a career. Uh, we're going to take a break for the news with Noah Shepard. Thanks again, Noah Shepard, for that audio. And now he's doing double duty with the newscast. I'm Brian Callahan in for Linda Swain. This is News Talk. We'll be right back after weekdays on VOC. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. This is Brian Callahan in for Linda Swain today on News Talk. Um, We're going to change gears here now a little bit now and go national, international even, if you will. Um, I'm sure, you know, you've heard in the news the increasing number of stories about foreign interference in, in our elections and in all kinds of different facets of our, um, of our democracy here in Canada and elsewhere. But specifically now, this um, seems to be gathering a bit of 
steam, if, if, if nothing else. Now the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation is caught up and the entire board has resigned over and a donation of 2016, which originally was thought to have come from a Chinese businessman, but now turns out it may have actually come from the Chinese government themselves, which just raises a whole host of other issues. With me now, joining me all the way from Ottawa is the one and only Tim Powers. Tim, how's it going? Well, Brian, I'm glad you're not talking about me in relation to some court case. So uh, international electoral affairance is a walk in the park compared to you doing court reporting on me. So thank you for that. Well, yeah, I've never had any reason to. We could talk Big Turk, if you like. We could talk. (laughs) Well, we should tell the listeners we're old hockey teammates from more than a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. I I was personally I thought I was uh, I was a standout goaltender with many shutouts. You were, buddy. Yeah, thank you very much. You were. Of course, it helped when three shots on goal at the cavernous <laughs> memorial stadium and i was three feet tall but hey shots on goal count and and even if they're coming in at two miles an hour but enough of that it's a good thing that uh shesterkin uh shesterkin <laughs> is playing now because you would have crushed him in the day or linus allmark you would have been the vesna trophy winner buddy oh i was a dryden and a and a, and a john davidson guy but okay we, <laughs> that's another story let's uh, get let's deep dig a little deep into this I, you know i mean the globe mail's taking a lot of credit for breaking the fact that this businessman turns out to be actually a chinese uh, government. Well, you tell me, what's the latest? How close is this to the bone now, Tim? Uh, well, I think it's eating into the bone. So this, the, the, the individual in question uh, was connected to the, well, was seen to be connected to, is connected to uh, the, the, the Chinese government, according to the Globe and Mail. And when that story came forward before yesterday's story of the mass resignation, the board and the CEO, as you pointed out, um, after a couple of days uh, of the original story of the donation coming to the fore, the Trudeau Foundation uh, said it would repay that donation. Um, That's never a good look. Yeah, well, and I believe today from some notes I saw... Um, that it still hasn't been repaid at this juncture, and now who knows how long that may take given that there is no CEO and uh, no board of directors at the moment. The challenge the Trudeau Foundation has, of course, is the name, and it presents a big political target to the opposition, particularly the conservatives, who have viewed the federal government's performance on alleged Chinese electoral interference to be lacking even today, Pierre Polyev, the uh, leader of the opposition, the head of the Conservative Party, put out a statement, uh, a letter on Twitter that he had sent to David Johnson. David Johnson, as you will know, is the former governor general. David Johnson was appointed by uh, Justin Trudeau to the role of special rapporteur to produce for the government a report on electoral interference and guidelines on what to do. Polyev put out this letter today and said, Mr. Johnson, how are you going to look at the Trudeau Foundation and their donation that they received from Beijing, I'm using his words, when you were once a board member of the Trudeau Foundation? So for the opposition, um, the links between the Trudeau Foundation and the government uh, provide a lot of rich target space. It just builds and builds and builds. I mean, the the connections, uh, you know, always... 
seem to be endless. You know, if you get down, down the road of political appointees, they very often more or less said, you know, they link right back. And the, the worst part of this, you know, on, on the surface, just this particular aspect of the whole foreign interference controversy for me is this react to, you know, reaction to, oh, and we're going to pay it back after a news organization breaks the story. I mean, there can be no, I mean, it's just a knee jerk reaction. Okay, we now we have to pay it back, but it looks even worse, you know? It, it looks even worse, uh, particularly when you appear to have been caught doing something wrong. And, you know, credit to the Globe and Mail. They've done a very good job here uh, being at the forefront of telling the stories around electoral interference. They've had a lot of support, I think, from sources in the security establishment and elsewhere who want this tale told. Uh, important to point out, too, just some more connections there. So Morris Rosenberg, he was in the news not that right. long ago. He was the CEO of the Trudeau Foundation. Prior to David Johnson taking on the special rapporteur's role, Morris Rosenberg um, did a report for the government on the, the allegations of electoral interference in 2019 and 2021. Now, uh, to be fair to Mr. Rosenberg, he had previously been a senior deputy minister in both the Trudeau government and prior to that, the Harper government, and I think even going back to the Martin government. Mr. Johnson, also to be fair to him, had been appointed by Stephen Harper, and most people um, I, I would speak to here would tell you his reputation is beyond reproach. However, in this day and age, nobody's reputation, it seems, is beyond reproach, and any connection to that foundation is a bit of a political lightning rod. Other thing I think to point out, too, just so people understand what the Trudeau Foundation is, it's a foundation that did get $125 million, I believe, from the right. Chang government to get started. It, it, it is an academic institution and foundation. Its purpose is to fund research and study, and it is that money doesn't just go to liberals. Um, Chuck Strahl, former conservative minister, uh, did some work with the Trudeau Foundation, a gentleman by the name of Ray Speaker, who used to be a senior Reform Party member, Chantelle Bear, the well-known journalist and, and commentator, all were recipients of grants from the Trudeau Foundation. So whatever good work the foundation may have done, um, as their board said yesterday and their CEO has been uh, overturned by the politicization yeah. of it as a consequence of this story. And the bigger, you know, the, the thing I wonder here too, Tim, and I'm sure the public does too, beyond the, politi- the politics of this is the larger concern. You know, there are people who are, you know, the public who aren't, aren't as tuned or in or not quite sure what's happening. The larger question is still in the room. What does all this mean? Does it mean that the Chinese governments have had some influence over particular writings? Does it mean that yeah. wherever they donated money, if you look through those ledgers, you're going to see there's a certain amount of money there you know are are they in their pocket you know the question the larger question hasn't been asked or proven or they haven't gotten there yet because i think the politics of it have gotten in the way but what people really want to know is did the chinese government influence our last election and to and if they did what for what what did they want what what did they have to gain yeah, and look, there's all sorts of different reports on all of that. So let me, so Mr. Rosenberg's report that I've talked about before, and there have been a couple of others, have all said there was no keyword here, and you will you will understand it well, no material mm. evidence that whatever the Chinese did had a material impact on any electoral result. A well-known polling analyst, uh, Eric Grenier, he writes the website The Writ, he used to be an analyst for CBC, 
worth looking at his site, and he went through it all and said, look, whatever the Chinese may have done here, they didn't make a difference in the outcome of the election. However, that doesn't mean we should give them a pass, because at some point they may have an influence, the Russians, the Iranians, and others may have an influence on how all of this plays out in the future. And why do the Chinese want to influence elections? Well, probably like anybody else, they want to create a more favorable environment for governments that are more favorable to China. There was one report, uh, I believe, that came from a security intelligence service that the Globe had put forward. And again, people can Google this to see it in its entirety, but it it suggested that the Chinese had uh, wanted the Trudeau government to win in 2021 uh, because, again, they were seen by Beijing as being more favorable to to them uh, and to their activities. So this is a story, Brian, that is not going to go away. It, it now is in the hands of David Johnson. There have been uh, outcry for a public inquiry. Justin Trudeau has said if David Johnson recommends a public inquiry, this will happen and there will be a public inquiry. The conservatives aren't letting it go. Uh, the prime minister's chief of staff is set to testify at a parliamentary committee here this week about what she knew or didn't know. Probably won't be able to say much because of security uh, laws and guidelines. So it, it goes on. It will go on. Yeah. And uh, just one last thing on all of that is, you know, while it might have uh, there might be suspicions of influence or whatever. It certainly didn't help them with Huawei, uh, although that was a that was a court ruling. Yep. But we all know that you know there's always suspicion about those. There was so many. There's so much international fallout and repercussions of that, especially with the United States and and and. Uh, uh, I, I can never pronounce her name right unless I'm looking at it on a screen. But Meng Wen, uh, I'm not even going to attempt. Meng Wen Zhou. Meng Wen Zhou. Yeah. Um, yep. And everything, and and you know, and all that, and uh, didn't get her a pass. So you know, and to by best of my knowledge, we're not using that technology here yet either. So uh, you know, for all of its uh, any suggestions of influence, it doesn't seem to have worked in certain channels. Although maybe it's worked in others. The time will tell. Yeah, and the only thing I'd say quickly, and I can give you one very personal example. Yeah, cool. I know you're heading to break. I was uh, on a television panel three, four years ago um, at, at the height of the Huawei controversy, at the height of the two Michaels, and I made a comment that questioned a government decision. As soon as I got off that, that <laughs> channel, uh, I got a note from Chinese state television. I don't know how they got my email address asking if I would go on and talk about it. It was wild. Maybe it came from their trial balloon. (laughs) Could have been Greg Smith messing around (laughs) there at VOCM, just testing if I bought propaganda or not. Greg's got connections. You never know. Everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. Tim Powers, thank you so much, not just for being, you're you're a morning guy, but uh, you're here in the afternoon. So thanks for uh, skipping your nap and uh, joining me for a few minutes. Anytime for a fellow Big Turk and St. Bonds boy. Take care, buddy. Thanks, Tim. You too. That's Tim Powers up along in the nation's capital. We're a little bit past the break. We're going to take a break right back here in a couple of minutes on News Talk. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. 
Back with you this afternoon, a Wednesday afternoon. Brian Callahan here filling in for Linda Swain. A little under the weather, coming back around though. And um, I'm told by good authority, there's a good chance Linda will be back in the saddle here tomorrow. Um, moving right along, I want to thank Brian Medor again too for his contributions to the show today, earlier today. Uh, Brian dropped down and uh, had a chat with the Communist Party of Canada leader, Liz Rowley. She's in the province this week drumming up support for its uh, platform to roll back prices and profits while increasing wages. Well, who wouldn't be for that? Um, the parties, you know, they've fielded candidates here in the province in the past, of course. Uh, left-leaning agenda based on, you know, the, the, the basics of social, uh, of reducing the cost of living and transferring wealth from the corporate sector down to the average guy um, or girl or family. Communist Party leader Riz Rowley speaks with VOCN's Brian Medor, who first asked her about the challenge of actually finding people uh, to run for the party in this province. Well, we'd like to field more, but we're uh, we have uh, uh, Sean here has been a candidate for the Communist Party in the 2015 election. Um, we haven't f- we haven't fielded many candidates, as you probably know, um, and in general, we've, we will probably run th- 30, 40, 50 candidates across the country in a general election, and uh, we because we have things to say to the people of Canada, and we hope one day to elect. We have elected in the past. Um, we've elected uh, uh, in uh, Saskatchewan and also in Quebec uh, at the federal level and uh, provincially in Ontario and Manitoba. We've elected a lot of people at the local level, municipal politics, school boards, etc. And we hope to do that again. But uh, what what we are, what we think is most important is, is to build a coalition of progressive forces, which would include uh, not only progressive political political parties, the NDP, the Greens, Quebec Solidaire, but also movements, the trade union movement, women's movements, youth, students, farmers, fishers, all of these different forces to come together to force this minority government to do something about the current crisis of, uh, of living that is facing working people. And that kind of a coalition with a minority government should be able to get the government to make some concessions. The first one would be to roll back prices on food, fuel, and rents. The second one would be to uh, raise wages, raise pensions, introduce a guaranteed annual livable income, uh, tax the big corporations, the windfall profits tax, a basic increase in the uh, corporate tax. Their taxes are very low. Um, these can curb corporate profits and corporate power in this country. We really need a government that is going to stand up for consumers and for workers and stop speaking consistently day after day for the big corporations, like Loblaws. Liz Rowley, leader of the Communist Party. Is it that simple, though, just simply roll back prices, increase wages, give free tuition at the university? Is it just that simple, like just a little check mark? Well, I think, no, it isn't going to be simple to get it. That's pretty obvious. But I, we all know from our previous experience that, that nothing in this country that you know benefits working people was ever delivered by any uh, government in power. It, uh, big movements of people that uh, demand that these things be done finally led to governments you know conceding making those concessions uh, and now that uh, the people's movements are kind of on the quiet side 
or have been for the last 10, 10 or 20 years. Um, we're seeing the drive to privatize everything in sight, to starting with Medicare. Uh, students are loaded with, you know, very high tuition. Medicare is under attack. Uh, it's a, it's a very, it's a bad situation. So. People do need to get together. They need to fight for these things. So if we get them, as we, we expect that at some point we will, if the world doesn't explode from a nuclear war in the first place or environmental catastrophe, uh, it won't be a socialist Canada, but it'll certainly be a better place for millions of people to live. And we think, you know, in the course of that, people may be able to start to see you know, that the problem really is capitalism and that what's needed is systemic change. But, uh, you know, when we don't hide that fact, we say to people, this is the basis of the problem. It isn't only your your nasty boss or your, your nasty uh, landlord. The problem's bigger than that. So, no, it won't be, you know, easy, but it's, a, it's pretty important. The, what is the alternative? <laughs> What is the alternative indeed? That is the leader of the Communist Party of Canada, Liz Rowley. She's in the province this week, you know, um, doing the rounds, uh, drawing up some support for the party, looking for candidates. Um, and she was speaking with uh, VOCM's Brian Medor. Thanks again, Brian, for that. Um, we're going to move ahead now. I've got, um, you know, on a sad note. Really, we're going to finish the show today on um, Chris Brooks. I'm not sure you may or may not have... Uh, uh, if you live in the Battery, you know who Chris is. If uh, you have anything to do with the arts, you know who Chris is. Chris Brooks uh, was just a, a force, a staple of the province's arts, media, and cultural landscape. 79 years old, passed away this week. Um, the family and are saying that it was a tragic accident. I'm hearing it may have been a fall. But nonetheless, just out of the blue, Chris Brooks, 79 years old, is gone and um, of course, well-known playwright, author, storyteller, radio producer for the CBC and independently through Battery Radio. I was born in England, but, you know, grew up here, won international awards, the Peabody Award and the, and the Prix Italia, you know, for some of his famous, great, fantastic documentaries. But on the local front, of course, uh, known for his connection, to, a, a long-time connection to the LSPU Hall, the Mummers Troop Theatre of Newfoundland founding member. Um, Jerry Lynn Mackey, VOCM's Jerry Lynn Mackey, caught up with Andy Jones, uh, legend in himself in his own right, uh, who was a good friend and collaborator, collaborator with uh, Chris Brooks. And Jerry Lynn spoke with uh, Andy Jones about Chris just a little earlier. He really was a, a major figure in the early days of the theater and the formation of the theater in the existence of the LSPU Hall at all. Um, of course, Chris was uh, instrumental in that. And uh, and then he, after his major kind of influence in the theater, um, and we, we all worked with Chris at various points along the way, every person you know from our generation and younger too, he worked with so many younger people uh, so, you know, he just uh, he filters through everything uh, that's uh, that's art in Newfoundland wow. What do you think his one of his biggest contributions would be? Well, I gee, it's hard to say, Chris did so much uh, but, you know, certainly he, he started the Mummers Troupe that theatre company and they brought in a kind of theater to Newfoundland that we, we, no one had ever seen before, and that very documentary style um, of collective theater, uh, which w was kind of the rage in in, uh, in in the rest of the world it was just beginning then. So he introduced that here. He, he you know he 
worked a lot of people through. He went through, he made a lot of political, direct political statements about the fishery, about the uh, situation of Labrador's uh, isolation from Newfoundland, uh, um, about um, the seal hunt. Just so many issues, uh, the history of Newfoundland. Uh, oh my God, I can't think of all the things he did, and um, you know. And then he had this other career as a radio and broadcasting presence, which really, you know, I've heard that he had like forty international awards for this work. It wasn't like stuff that everyone was hearing about every day. It wasn't on you know, like the ECMAs or anything, but um, although he, I think he probably got those awards too. <laughs> but um, you know. Um, I luckily, you know, I think of what I've done in the last 50 years that I've been involved in this. You know, I think some of the nicest things I did were, one thing was, and this is just personal, but he did uh, uh, the recording of Jack Meets the Cat for radio. And that was a beautiful, beautiful thing. What a gorgeous piece of work that was. Tell me how you will remember him. I, I think I will remember him uh, in that studio and me being in one room and him being out in the other room in that little house um, in the battery. That's where I will picture him and his you know, voice talking to me through that. That was the, you know, uh, the most delicious uh, experience I had with Christopher, yeah. That is uh, Andy Jones, of course, legendary Newfoundland Labrador actor. Andy Jones, uh, writer, performer, um, speaking about his good friend and collaborator, Chris Brooks, there. And my thanks again, Geraldine Mackey, for uh, for gathering that tape and having a chat with Andy about Chris today. Uh, really uh, summed it up well for all of us. Chris Brooks, uh, 79, passed away. That's it for... Uh, me today and News Talk today on uh, VOCM. Uh, Linda Swain, we're thinking, back in the saddle tomorrow with any luck. Hopefully she's feeling better. Um, anyway, uh, I will be back in, probably as uh, my buddy Tim Power said, back in the courts tomorrow morning. Until then, uh, that's it for News Talk. Thanks very much. Uh, have a great afternoon. We're off to the news with Noah Shepard. <laughs>